You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Everybody likes a trophy. You might even remember one of the first trophies you got growing up. They're very memorable. We like getting those bright, shiny trophies. I had an episode with a trophy last year. I coached my daughter's soccer team. been coaching her for years. and In our league, we were one of the two best teams. Had a great season. And we made it all the way to the championship game. It was us versus the other good team in the league. And it was a battle. Back and forth, back and forth. Both teams were playing their hearts out. And my team was really trying their best, giving 100% effort. I was on the sidelines quietly coaching. And, 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 and it, was, it was a very exciting game. And then with literally a minute left in the game, the other team scored a goal. And we lost one to nothing. So after the game... I'm, I'm gathering my team together, and I'm trying to talk to them about you can learn more from a loss than a win, and you know, all the coach stuff, and they're crying, and, and while, I'm, while I'm talking to them, the, um, the league brings out this huge, I mean, tro- almost as tall as I am, huge golden trophy that has four pillars to it. And they present it to the other team. So while I'm sitting there trying to coach my kids and console my kids, the other team's taking pictures around this huge trophy. And they're cheering and high-fiving. And parents are taking pictures. And, and I'm over it. I'm over it. <laughs> but we love trophies, don't we? In our culture, a trophy says something about you. Or maybe not getting a trophy says something about you. We love to feel valued by a trophy. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a trophy that doesn't say anything about you. It really says something about God. And I want to show you this in Ephesians chapter 2. So turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We are continuing our study Line by line, verse by verse, this epistle, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century to a group of Christians who were in the the, the city of Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 4 through 7. Let's start reading in verse 1 to establish the context. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Quick shout out to all the people in blue this morning, Uh, our students and our volunteers. They had their walking wisely weekend. Uh, This weekend's been a great weekend, heard great reports, and and it's just been neat to see how God is using that and blessing. So, hey, good to see you guys here. Glad you're here. Look great in your blue shirts. 
Uh, we might have given you, should have given you blue fleeces. We didn't know it was going to be this cold this weekend, but, but blue t-shirts, all right? And uh, it's great to see you guys. And by the way, it takes uh, a lot of volunteers to pull this off. We have folks that are providing meals and providing host homes and people driving students around and people leading small groups. And, and there's just a lot of folks involved in, in making uh, this weekend a reality. So I want to say thank you to all those who were involved. And uh, youth, I pray that uh, God will use this time in your life. That you know, I, I believe that weekends like this are, are important because seeds are planted. And we pray those seeds will take root in your heart and, and begin to, to bear fruit. So look there with me, Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, now look at this next next phrase. So that in the coming ages he might show. He might demonstrate. He might display. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we pause in this moment to to express our dependence upon you. We believe that all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. So as we study your word, we pray that you would move in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would understand your word, and that we would have the the wherewithal to respond to your word. Lord, I pray that you would change our lives today for the glory and fame of your great name. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There in verses 1 through 3, which we've already studied together, we see the bad news that before we meet Christ, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are bombarded by the ungodly message of the world. We are being lured and tempted to destruction by Satan, and our own sin nature is leading us astray. We are, the Bible says, by nature children of wrath. Because we've disobeyed God, we deserve his just condemnation against our sins. And that's really bad news, but that helps set the stage for the glory of the good news. That's why it says in verse 4, but God. You, you were dead, but God has done something for you. And he begins to explain what God has done for us to rescue us from our desperate spiritual condition. And in, in, this, in this section that we just read together, Paul begins to explain some, some important truths about what happens when we meet Christ. What happens at the moment of salvation and as we live our Christian life. And so I want you to see that with me. Just three things this morning. First of all, in this passage we see that Paul explains God's heart. Paul explains God's heart. Look what it says there in verse 4. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What we learn from this passage is salvation begins in the heart of God. But God speaks of God's intervention in our desperate spiritual condition. And the question arises, why did God do that? Why did God see fit to step into the middle of our brokenness and our lostness to do something about our separation from God? Why did God move to provide salvation? Why did God move to to rescue us? Why did God do that? Well, Paul wants us to understand it's because of his heart. It's because of the way he is disposed toward you and me. And, And as Paul is apt to do, he begins to pile up words to express the heart of God. And I want to just look at these words very quickly individually because they are, they are so wonderful to consider. First of all, you'll notice that his mercy is rich. Look what it says there in verse 4. It says, God being rich in mercy. Now, the word mercy speaks of God's compassion or pity on the sinners who are suffering the scourge of sin. It's used often throughout the Scripture. And it speaks of God's compassion for us who really don't deserve His compassion. One way I've heard the mercy of God defined, which has been helpful to me through the years, is this. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. We are by nature children of wrath apart from Christ. We are sinners. We've rebelled against God. We deserve His judgment. We deserve His condemnation. But God being rich in mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. And that word rich there, where it says He's rich in mercy, means that God is not a a miser. He's not stingy with his mercy. He is bountiful with his mercy. His mercy is overflowing because it comes from his very heart. And so Paul wants us to understand one of the reasons God has intervened in your life, one of the reasons God has done some dramatic things to save you from your sins is because his heart is full of mercy. Aren't you glad for a merciful God? Not only is he Rich in mercy, but his love is great. Look what it says in verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I really, I really appreciate this verse because in this verse we see both the noun form and the verb form of love. It's the Greek word agape. You've heard that word before. And there in verse 4 it says... He's rich in mercy, and that mercy derives from his great love. That's the noun form, his agape. And then it says, with which he loved us. That's the active part of God doing something because of his love for us. That's his love in action. And it says there, his love is a great love. The word love, the the word agape basically means God's strong... I want you to hear this. God's strong affection that seeks the good of the object of that affection. And so when it says that God's love toward us is great, and it is the love with which he's done something, he's he's put his love in action, he's loved us, that means that God, listen to this, has set his strong affection upon you. 
listen, God loves you. And I know you expect to hear preachers say that, and you've heard people tell you that before, but let the weight and the reality of that truth settle in on your heart and soul. The God of the universe has strong affection for you. He loves you. And that is an amazing truth. Now, we use the word love in, in ways that, that you know, aren't really that helpful sometimes. We might say, I love tacos, right? And we, we're saying we, we like tacos. But, but this love that God has for you is not just kind of a, a general love. It is agape love. It is a strong affection for you and for me. So his love is great. That's the intensity of his love. And then third, notice his grace is immeasurable. Look what it says there in verse 5. It says, He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. We brought nothing to the table, spiritually dead. He made us alive together with Christ. Then he says, By grace you have been saved. And then in verse 7 it says that he wants to show through, through the ages, the watch this, the immeasurable riches of his grace. In other words, his grace is so amazing, it's so wonderful, you can't measure it. It's beyond measuring. It's, a, it's an overflowing grace. And, and the, the word grace, we'll talk about this some more in the coming weeks, the word grace simply means God's unmerited favor. The blessings he bestows upon us that we do not deserve. That's grace. Undeserved blessing from God. Undeserved salvation. Undeserved rescue. By grace you have been saved. And so in this passage Paul explains God's heart for you and for me. To understand why God intervened. But secondly I want you to see God's salvation. What salvation entails, one, one of the things I love is I love to think about my conversion when I was nine years of age. I, I know, knew very little of, of theological truth and reality. I just knew that Jesus loved me, that he died on the cross for me, that he rose from the dead, and I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And so at nine years of age, I called on the name of Jesus and invited him in my life by faith, and he saved me, he forgave me of all of my sins and reconciled me to God. And now I'm a child of God because of God's grace through Christ. But now I look back at that, that decision when I was nine, and I began to understand all that that decision meant. The implications of that decision. And I want you to see the implications of the decision to follow Christ. What it means to be saved. And it's really, really powerful. Notice what it says there in verse 5. He says, by grace you have been saved. That word saved is a perfect passive participle. Which basically means that it speaks of a, of a past event with ongoing results. That's what the perfect tense Means And so when we were saved, we were saved at a point in time, but there are ongoing implications for our lives. And, and, and he uses this word, saved. This word was used in Greek literature to speak of someone being rescued from the sea or rescued from the dangers of war or rescued from the wrath of another. So this word was used. It's the word saved. I heard somebody say one time, and uh, they were speaking about uh, 
Baptist, and this was an extended family member, but they said something to this effect. All you Baptists talk about is getting saved. To which my thought was, what else do you want to talk about? We're talking about eternity in heaven or hell. I mean, I think we ought to talk about the glory of being saved. And Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And then he begins to explain what this means for our lives. And in this text, it's really interesting, Paul takes three words and he kind of makes up, uh, he adds something to them to make up his own words. He takes three words and he adds the Greek prefix soon, which translates together with. So three words and he adds the prefix together with to that word. And that prefix together with speaks of our union with Christ. So here's what that means. This is a very important theological concept. When you became a Christian, when you placed your faith in Christ, the Bible says you, you, you became united to Jesus. You came into a union with Christ. You, you, you are now with Christ. You are in him. He is in you. You are united to Christ. And that means something for your life. So Paul makes up these three words, really, or builds these three words to show us what it means to be in union with Christ. Here's what it means to be united to Christ. And, just, and listen carefully. To be united to Christ means that what is true of Christ is true of us. Let me say it again. What is true of Christ is true of us. And in this context, what is true of Christ physically, when he was on the earth, is true of us spiritually. Now let me explain. Think about Jesus. He died on the cross. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, a matchless life. He never sinned. And he went to the cross in obedience to the Father and because of his love for us. And on the cross, he died in our place. He took all of our sin on himself. The wrath of God that we deserve was poured out upon him. Jesus died in our place. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. Early on the third day, he rose from the grave. So think about Jesus. He died on the cross. He was laid in a tomb. We know that story. And at some moment, early on Sunday morning, listen, and this is a, an amazing concept, his heart began to beat. He was dead, a corpse. And his heart began to beat. And, and, and blood began to flow through his veins. And his lungs began to breathe. And then we know that he walked out of the tomb. And he met with his disciples and others after his resurrection. And then after that time of meeting with his disciples, the Bible says that he ascended to heaven. He went back to the Father and he's seated at the right hand of God, the place of honor and prestige and authority. So, what's true of Jesus, what happened to him, came to life, lived the resurrected life, ascended to the Father, is true of us spiritually. Now let me show you how this works. Let me show you that first word where he adds the prefix soon. The first word is the word sunezopaisesen. And look what it says there back in uh, verse 4. It says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Now look at the next two words, together with. So that, that phrase, made us alive together with, is one word in the Greek. 
And so that means that when we were united with Christ by faith, he made us alive with Christ. The same way that Jesus in the tomb began to have a beating heart and came to life, the Lord brought us to life spiritually. Because remember what it says in verse 1 and verse 2, verse 3? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead, unable to save ourselves. But God, because he loves us, because of his mercy, because of his grace, intervened, intersected our life, and made us alive. The theological word for that is the word regeneration. Or we might say we were born again at the moment of salvation. The Lord made us alive and we placed our faith in Christ. God brought us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. So just like Jesus' heart began to beat, if you're a Christian, if you are united to Christ by faith, there was a time when your heart began to beat spiritually. You were born again. You came to life even though you were spiritually dead. The second word he uses is the word sunagirin. Uh, and it means he raised us up with Christ. Look what he says. It says he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And here's the second long word, raise us up with him. Again, that's one word in the Greek. Raise us up with him. So just like Jesus walked out of the grave... Just like Jesus rose from the dead and lived in resurrection power, if you are united to him by faith, you were raised up too. He raised us up with Christ. If you are a Christian, and don't miss this, because I think so many of us miss out on the riches of what it means to live the Christian life. If you are a Christian, we, you and I, we now live with resurrection power. God's made you alive. And the resurrection of power of Jesus flows through your life now to transform you and to encourage you and to help you to live the Christian life. We live with resurrection power. And I don't have time to do it this morning, but over in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, Paul explains what that means. It means that if you are a Christian, because of the power of God in your life, and this is in your notes, sin no longer has dominion over your life. Before you met Christ... You were enslaved to sin. But now that you're a Christian, now that you're united with Jesus, you have resurrection power. Listen to me. You can now say no to sin and yes to God because of the power of God in your life. Amen? This is a big deal. He raised us up with Christ. Spiritually speaking, we are living in resurrection power and we can live victoriously. And then the third word that he uses... Is the word sunikathesin. It means that he seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Look what it says in verse, seven, in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So just like Jesus physically ascended to the Father, sat down at the right hand of God, if you're a Christian, spiritually speaking, that happened to you. We're still walking on this earth. We're not in heaven yet, but spiritually speaking, it's as if we're already there. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This means three things very quickly. Number one, it means we no longer are under the authority of Satan. Remember in verse 2 it says that we lived under the, the power of the prince of the air. Satan was calling the shots. 
Satan was dominating our lives. Satan was chewing us up and spitting us out. But now if you're a Christian, listen, you are at the right hand of God, seated with Christ. Satan no longer is calling the shots. So don't let him have his way in your life. If you're a Christian, don't let Satan have his way in your life. You are seated with Christ. Say, get out of here, Satan. Resist. Because you are at the place of authority, seated with your Savior. It also means that we are no longer under wrath. It says there in verse 3 that we are children of wrath. We're living under the just condemnation of God as we are lost and in our sins. But when we are saved, the wrath of God is, 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 is taken away because Jesus died taking the wrath of God in our place. And if we're seated with him, if we're in heaven spiritually speaking, then we're no longer under wrath. We've been, we've been forgiven. The wrath of God has been poured out upon Christ and his atonement has been applied to our life. And then third, this means that heaven is our home. Again, we're not in heaven yet, physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, we're there. We're, we're united with Christ. We're at the right hand of God, spiritually speaking. And one day, our, our spiritual position will come in conformity with where we actually are. Heaven. We're going there one day. But if you are a Christian, it's as good as done. You're already there, seated with Christ. It means that we no longer belong to this world. We are seated with Jesus. And so... That little phrase, together with, that little preposition, soon, in the Greek language, means that we were dead, but we've been made alive. We were enslaved to the influence of the world and our sin nature, but now we live with resurrection power. We were under the authority of Satan, but now we're seated with Christ who reigns over all. We are in union with Christ. That's what it means to be saved. But just very quickly, let me show you the third truth here. And it's God's purpose. Why did God do all of this? What's his ultimate purpose in intervening in our desperation and saving us? Look what it says there in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's what God is doing by bringing redemption to the world. This is why God is at work saving souls, changing lives through the substitutionary work of Christ. God desires to display the wonders of his grace and kindness now and forever. Do you notice what it said there in verse 7? He wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. But it says there in verse 7, in the coming ages. His goal in the here and now and in the coming ages, which means all of eternity... His goal is to display, listen, how amazing His grace is. I like how the ESV Study Bible says it. It will take all of eternity to fathom God's love. And those who are saved will never plumb the depths of it. Oh, His love and grace and salvation, they're amazing. And God desires... To show his grace, listen, through individual lives. And he wants to put those lives on display for all of eternity. Here's what that means for you and for me. And this is a big deal. When we become followers of Christ, we become trophies of grace. Trophies of grace. 
The grace and kindness of God is on display every time someone's life is changed. If you are a Christian, listen, you are a trophy. A trophy of grace. You're putting God's grace and power and love and mercy and kindness on display. And it will be that way for all of eternity. I love to read Ephesians and then think about the church in Ephesus. If if you read Acts 19, you can see just who made up the church in Ephesus. Acts 19 tells us there were Orthodox Jews who were saved by Christ and were members of the church in Ephesus. There were worshipers of a pagan goddess who were saved and were a part of the church in Ephesus. There were magicians who practiced dark magic, slaves of Satan, and they were saved, they were forgiven and joined the church in Ephesus. I mean, this was some kind of group in that church. And every single one of them was a trophy of grace. And our God, the God of love, mercy, grace, and kindness, is in the trophy-making business. But I don't want you to miss this. And this is how I want to kind of close down our time. This display of lives transformed by grace, God making us trophies, will all be for the glory of God. It says there that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's going to display his grace through our lives for his glory. You see, when we think about trophies in competitions here on this earth, the trophy is about us, right? It's about our achievement, about what we've done. But when you are a trophy of grace, it's the exact opposite. Being a trophy of grace has nothing to do with what you've done. It's all about what he's done. So who gets the glory? The one who did it all. The one who saved your soul. The one who intervened in your life. He's the one that gets the glory. That's what being a trophy of grace is all about. John Stott was a faithful pastor and um, wrote many theological works. He told a story about being a student, a theological student at Riley uh, Ridley Hall in Cambridge. And the president of that theological college, his name was... Paul Gibson, and he was retiring from his role. And so the, the, the school commissioned someone to, to, to paint his picture, you know, to, to paint his portrait, which is quite an honor. You know, you stand there and someone paints your portrait and they put it up on the wall. And, and when they had finished the portrait, they had a ceremony, a retirement ceremony, and they presented him with this portrait. And so here's this, this retiring theological president. He's looking at this portrait of himself. And here's the comment that he made. And I thought this was very, very helpful. He said, in the future, he believed that people looking at the picture would not ask, who is that man? But they would ask, who painted that portrait? 
In other words, he's saying, the picture's not about me. What's more important about this picture is the skill of the one who painted it. And our lives are trophies of grace. Not so that people look at us and say, boy, Wade has got it together. Wade's got this thing figured out. Wade is doing a great job living the Christian life. No, 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 no. No. We're trophies. And and what, what should happen now and what will happen for all of eternity is people look at our changed, transformed lives and say, Who did that? Who did that? Who transformed their lives in such a dramatic way? Who did that? And the answer will be Jesus did that. And all the glory and fame and honor will go to King Jesus. It won't be about us. It will be about Him. Amen? And so God's purpose is to display His grace through your life. And aren't you glad we get to be a part of that? We get to show the goodness of God as he transforms us and changes us and is patient and kind with us and picks us up when we stumble and fall and helps us through all of our weaknesses and mistakes. When people see God working in our lives, they get to see his grace. Listen, to our young people this morning, there, there is no greater purpose in life than showing people The grace of the one who changed you. Pointing people to the only one who saves. There's no greater purpose in life. We are trophies of grace. So here's the big idea and I'm going to close. God, compelled by his agape love for you, his strong affection for you, intervened in your desperate condition to give you a marvelous salvation in Christ. That statement is true of your life if you know Jesus. God, compelled by his love for you, intervened in your desperate condition to give you a marvelous salvation in Christ. You are a trophy of grace. Wow. I'm looking at a lot of trophies this morning. A lot of trophies. And it says so much about our great God. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.